Well, we have been on a journey um, following Jesus through Matthew's gospel since the beginning of January. And actually, if you count the sermon series we did in the Sermon on the Mount a couple years back, we've been in Matthew as a church for well over a year. As, I don't know about you, but as I marvel uh, at Jesus verse by verse, chapter by chapter, it's sometimes easy for me to lose the big picture. Like every week I'm focusing on a certain piece of, of the text of Matthew, and it's like, it's good for us every once in a while to pull back and just remember that, uh, that Matthew is a gospel. Uh, that means good news. And so he's got good news to share in every piece of his, of his gospel. And... W- I want to ask, before we even dive into the text tonight, what is the good news? What is the gospel? Think about that for a moment. In fact, uh, in your bulletin is a little page that says notes, or if you don't have that, get a scratch piece of paper. And I'd like you to consider writing down one aspect of the gospel. What comes to your mind when you hear the word gospel? Just take a moment, 20 seconds. I'm going to ask three people to shout out what you wrote down. Just, just one word, one phrase of an aspect of the gospel. So, go ahead. Shalom. Shalom, brother. Okay. What's the second aspect of the gospel that you might have written down? <laughs> Grace. Thank you. Grace. Anyone? No condemnation for those in Christ. Woo! Okay, so I, I asked us to write down an aspect of the gospel. And I said aspect because obviously I asked for three different answers and, and I got three different things. I bet if we kept going, we'd have other aspects that would pop up. And what that tells me is that the gospel is so full and so awesome that it it's probably exceeds our expectations or what we can say in one sentence or more. Here are some aspects of the gospel. Forgiveness of sin through the death of Jesus on the cross. That's one aspect of the gospel. Another one would be peace or shalom as as James mentioned. Here's one I like. Eternal life in a resurrected body. So that's one of the aspects of the gospel is that we have a hope of eternal life and resurrection. You know, the prophets talked about uh, the good news that they anticipated a lot. You know what they talked about? The Holy Spirit, the presence of God coming to dwell with us and in us. That is an aspect of the gospel. New life. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning God created and you get this whole thing. Well, Genesis uh, 1-11 shows us how basically people just kept screwing it up over and over again, over and over again. And, and so in the whole Old Testament is this dance of God being gracious and trying to help the people along and the people failing and sinning over and over again. So what do you have? The very first book of the New Testament, Matthew, that we're in, the very first words of his gospel In the beginning, or the beginning of. So Matthew is almost trying to frame the gospel as a new creation. So that's another aspect of the gospel. Adoption into God's family, that's a huge aspect of the gospel. And last, but certainly not least, is the reign of God. Or what we frequently read in the scriptures as the kingdom of God. It was 
what Jesus preached about most. It was his inaugural sermon in, in, in Matthew's gospel, in Mark's gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is really good news. Now, the people of God throughout history have had different ways at, at aiming conceptually uh, uh, to, toward this idea of salvation. They, they had different methods of, of aiming their minds and their hearts at this idea of hope or salvation in God. And one of those ways that they, they had was Scripture. So I'm talking about all the people before Jesus now. And Scripture pointed the people of God towards salvation. Scripture aimed at salvation. So for example, in Scripture, we have the story of Moses. God's appointed leader who led the people of God out of slavery in Egypt. Since then, God said, I'm going to send another one, like Moses. And he's going to send you out on a new exodus from sin and death. Okay? So scripture points people toward salvation. Or take David, the king of Israelite kings. Yet through the Psalms and the prophets, God promises to send another leader, a savior, a son from the line of David, who would lead us to salvation. So the scriptures aim us toward salvation. So do images. The image of pilgrimage, for example, is found throughout scripture as a way of imagining the people of God on the way toward something. The promised land, on the way toward rest, which represents salvation. The image of the banqueting tables frequent, this idea of just food and abundance and choice wines and people from all the nations sitting at it and at the head our Heavenly Father. It's an image that aims at salvation. There are images of the violent powerful in communion with the humble weak. The lion lying down with the lamb. The serpent playing innocently with the child. There's the image of salvation as weapons of war being melted down and turned into tools of agriculture. And one of the prominent images of salvation is that of rest. Now, last week we looked at Matthew 11 and you remember I said rest isn't just taking a nap or a vacation. It is a theologically rest, biblical rest, means this all-encompassing peace. It is salvation. That's why last week when Matthew says, or when Matthew wrote about what Jesus said, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will give you salvation. Do you see how powerful that is? Jesus is saying, I will give you salvation. So the people of God had scripture images, or scripture and images that aimed them toward this idea of salvation. But they also had practices or laws or commandments. So here's an example. God commanded the people of Israel and any foreigners among them, so whoever's with the company of Israel, commanded them to observe the Passover once a year. The Passover was a reliving of the Exodus. A reliving, not just a, a remembrance. So that's why even today, those who practice the Passover will say, Why is tonight different than any other night? They do not say, Why was that night different than any other night? 
It's not just a remembrance, it's a reliving, a recapitulation. The Passover is designed to look back as a way of looking forward toward a deeper promise of God's salvation. And in fact, uh, Orthodox Jews, even today, when they have a Passover meal, will have an empty chair for Elijah. Because the prophets tell us that one in the spirit of Elijah will come before the great day of the Lord, when God returns. Probably the most common practice, and certainly the most frequent, was that of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the 24-hour period from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And during the Sabbath, people were forbidden to work. It was to be a day of rest from the strivings and labor of economics. It's a day for renewal, a day for worship. The Sabbath was a good and generous gift. You know, in other ancient cosmologies, God's created people it was believed, to be their slaves, to do their work. But only in, in Judaism and Christianity do we have a God who creates people for relationship, who grants us meaningful work and meaningful rest. The Sabbath was a sign aimed at rest or salvation that was to come. Sabbath is going to form the theological setting for the text we're about to look at. Would you stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. So coming just right on the heels of Jesus offering rest to people. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Matthew writes this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples became hungry and began to pick heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they, they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from here, he went into their synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into the, a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal, just like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Uh, frankly, Lord, when I read this passage, I don't see on the surface the tension. I pray that 
by your spirit, you would open your word to us. And that you would show us just how powerful a thing it is that you're declaring here. What is so powerful that it would cause religious leaders, scholars of the scriptures, to want to murder you. And I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to the good news of this passage. That we would leave this place with our shoulders, Lord, the load lightened on us with joy filling our hearts, praising in you. Amen. You may be seated. So Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field of grain, hungry. They pick a few heads, just a few heads of grain, and start to eat the kernels. Enter the Pharisees. These guys are the leaders of a populist Jewish movement in the first century. They were zealous for the scriptures and following the laws of God. I mean, these guys were on fire for God. But, I mean, okay, really? Like, there are Pharisees hiding in the wheat fields to see what Jesus and his disciples are eating? Probably not. That's kind of a fun way to preach it. But probably these disciples, or these Pharisees are hanging out with the crowds who are following Jesus because they want to see what he's really all about. Whatever the reason that they are there, they are bent out of shape at Jesus' disciples picking these heads of wheat and eating them. Now the answer, or the question I have is why? What's the big deal with that? Why were these Pharisees claiming that Jesus' disciples were not being lawful? Or to put that in our vernacular in the Christian community, they're not being biblical. How do you be a biblical Christian? So why do the Pharisees think that they're not being very biblical? Well, here's the thing. The law about Sabbath in the Bible is fairly vague. Like it says, you shall observe the Sabbath. You shall not do work on the Sabbath. Your animals and your slaves aren't supposed to do work on the Sabbath. Uh, okay. Well, I, I guess the question then is, what is work? Because if I'm not supposed to do work on the Sabbath, well, what is work? Well, I guess God probably thought, hey, you know, you guys are made in my image. You probably have enough sense to figure that out. You can nuance it. The Pharisees, on the other hand, did not think that we could figure it out. So they nailed this thing down airtight. So there came into being all these interpretations of what that scripture meant, of what Sabbath and work actually meant. Before I share some of these commonly held rules about the Sabbath, I want to say this. I want to point out that these rules or regulations about the scripture, I believe, were probably formed with the greatest of intentions, with the spirit of trying to honor the law of God. Okay? I, I think that the people who came up with these were probably really passionate about God and making sure that the community of Israel wasn't breaking the Sabbath. But as you and I both know, when a generation or two goes by, and you forget why dad or grandpa came up with that regulation, and you forget the heart behind it, those regulations then become oppressive and burdensome, don't they? They can become the point rather than um, you know, the protector of the law. So here are some of the commonly held Sabbath regulations. Again, these are not from Scripture. These are interpretations of how we keep Sabbath. Walking. You could walk as much as you wanted in your home or in your uh, courtyard of, of your property, but you could only walk a thousand yards outside your, your abode, 
Okay, a thousand yards. I don't know where they got that one, but there you go, a thousand yards. Now, here's the thing. We humans are just so prone to wanting to bend and break the rules. So technically, if you went out the day before Sabbath and you made picnic baskets, let's say you wanted to travel on the Sabbath 3,000 yards. Every 999-yard interval, you could put a picnic basket. You could walk your 999 yards, and when you sat down to eat that meal, it would become a dwelling place. And then you could go 999 more yards to your next picnic basket. And so people actually would figure out different ways. There's one that says uh, if you tie a rope across your street, that then that street is connected to your house so you can walk as long as up to the rope. So if the day before Sabbath you want to go ahead and rope off your neighborhood block, then you could walk as many yards as you want between your house and the rope. So it gets kind of crazy. Here's another one. Carrying something in your hands was considered work, but wearing clothes is not considered work. You could carry that if, it's, if you're wearing it. So your wife says, pick up your tunic. It's on the floor again. Go put it in the closet, please. Uh, I can't carry it, honey. I can't carry it across the house. But you could put that cloak on, walk it into the room, put it in the closet. I'm sure people didn't have closets back then. You know what I'm saying? And then you could take it off. And that was one way you could get around work. Okay, but it gets crazier. What about spitting? Everyone wants to spit on the Sabbath, right? I know. Right? So if you spit, you always wanted to aim for a rock because if spit landed on a rock, that wasn't considered work. But there's actually a regulation that if you spit into dry ground and it creates a dimple, you've just made a furrow. Like a gardening thing, like a seed could go in there. You just broke the Sabbath. I'm not kidding. Now, why spitting is okay in the first place on the Sabbath? I don't know the answer to that question. But you can see that this kind of minutia of the law. So now let's get back to the Pharisees and Jesus. And just picking grain. Picking grain was considered working. Getting the, so you pick a head of grain. Wayne Youngquist here. I wish he was here. He has his PhD in like agriculture. But the way I understand it, you pick the head, you roll it, and then you go like this. And there's kernels that come out and then chaff. So you've just done three things. You have picked, which is harvesting. You have uh, uh, you've winnowed the chaff, which is another work in the regulations. And then you've eaten. You've, create, you've made a meal. You've broken three Sabbath rules in picking a head of grain. The Pharisees raise issue over this. These hungry guys picking these heads of grain. Talk about yoking heavy burdens around people's necks. How can you not hear that and then think back to just a few verses earlier? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thank you, Jesus. Now, what happens next? The way Jesus replies to the Pharisees is utter genius, and I think full of good news. Jesus lays down a three-part argument. Got to keep it together, so let's watch this. He begins with these words. Have you not read? This is just an interesting aside. I stole this from Dale Bruner. When Jesus speaks to the crowds the non-biblical scholar people. He always says, you have heard that it was said, or haven't you heard? Because the crowds, the common people, get their Bible interpreted through them through the priests, or the Pharisees, or the scribes. But whenever he's talking to someone who claims to be educated or super biblical scholar man, he says, haven't you read? It's like he, he's really... Pressing in, like, you claim to know all this stuff about the Bible. Haven't you read? 
You who are so big on Bible knowledge, you who are the Bible teachers, you who interpret the Bible and lay these heavy burdens on people, have you not read what David did when he and his men became hungry? Did you guys miss that one in 1 Samuel that Jennifer just read? The story that she read out of 1 Samuel 21, David is anointed king by the prophet Samuel. Saul is rejected as king by God, but de facto Saul is still on the throne. And so for a while, David is on the run. His life is at stake. He goes to this little town of Nob, goes into the house of God, is looking for some grub for he and his men. The priests are there. All they have are 12 loaves of consecrated bread. Every week the priests would make 12 loaves of bread, would put them there, consecrated, representing the 12 tribes of Israel in the house of God. Now, of course, the priests allow David and his men to take this bread and to eat it, which is illegal. There's two things going on. First, I think the priests did it because it made sense. I'm taking a little leniency there, but you know, there's hungry guys, and there, there are times when common sense or an empty belly trumps you know, holiness code or you know, showbread. If we were all starving to death, I would hope that we could... Well, first we'd try and pray over that communion bread and multiply it to feed us all, but if that didn't work, we, you know, we'd divvy it up, right? I, there's just some common sense going on there. But second, second... Um, these guys, these priests, are basically saying, uh, we recognize your kingship. We are going to risk our lives to give you this bread. We believe that you are the anointed king, not King Saul. They all died for that, by the way, later on in the story. They were all executed. And it's ironic that Jesus is before these Bible scholars greater than David and they're getting on his case for his disciples not even him picking some heads of grain I think Jesus brings this up not to completely make his point but to open the door to hey there's scriptural precedence guys scriptural precedence for breaking holiness code the priests gave David the consecrated bread Second, he brings up the temple. He says that it is in the law, in Numbers 28, it says that it's legal for priests to work on the Sabbath. Why? Because they're doing the work of God in the temple. Now, why is that important? Because the temple represented the presence of God. If you were working in the temple for God, then that gave you license to even break the Sabbath. It gave you license to, uh, to work on the Sabbath. Jesus says something amazing. I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Basically, this is his point. If the temple is special, and because you think God's presence is in the temple, then what if God's presence was standing right before you? Would not the man who has God's presence actually be able to know what's best for his disciples, actually know how to interpret Sabbath? That's his point. Third, he turns to Scripture again. It's almost like, so he, he opens this can of worms up with the whole David thing. Listen, guys, there's precedence for people breaking holiness code on Sabbath. Uh, you know, David did it with his men. And, and by the way, priests break 
the Sabbath all the time in the temple. And I'm just telling you, what if something greater than the temple is here? So he kind of goes down that way. And then it's almost as if he says, but the bigger issue here is, don't you know what it means? I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Haven't you read Hosea 6, 6? My, my guys are hungry. We're walking through a wheat field. Wouldn't the compassionate thing be to just let us have some heads of wheat? What's the big deal with you guys? Who cares if you practice Sabbath once a week if you're oppressing other people the other six days? So what's Jesus doing here? I gotta ask, is he abolishing the law and the prophets? Because back in Matthew 5, he says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And I think that's exactly what he's doing. Jesus is showing that he's fulfilling the longings of the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying, all that the law and the prophets were aiming at, it's me. I'm here standing before you and you're talking about eating heads of grain. Wake up. In Matthew 7, 12, Jesus says, Treat others the way you want them to treat you, for this is the law of, and the prophets. Treat others in the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. He doesn't say keep Sabbath, for that's the law and the prophets. He doesn't say to do all this list of other things. Finally, Jesus just comes out and says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's right. If you knew who you were talking to, you'd realize that I am the one who gave you Sabbath in the first place. I'm thinking like, what popped in my head was if Amy Poehler and Seth Meyers were still doing the really skit on SNL. It'd be like, really? Really, Pharisees? Some guys are hungry and you're griping about picking heads of grain again, really? Uh, are you really going to challenge the Son of Man who gave you the Sabbath? With your made-up rules, really, Pharisees, how's that treating you? Right? I, I mean, it just sounds so ridiculous. In this final scene, Jesus enters the synagogue, and there is a man with a withered hand. The Pharisees, so I don't, I don't know like, where they're sitting. I imagine Jesus goes in the synagogue, dude with a withered hand, and the Pharisees are like, oh, we got him now. They set a trap. Hey, hey, Jesus! Is it lawful? Is it biblical to heal on the Sabbath? I mean, he just kind of blows them out of the water here. Like, okay, guys, I mean, really have to go through this. Uh, you got a sheep. It falls in a pit. Seriously, you're not going to get it out? Of course you're going to get the sheep out. How much more value does a man, a person made in God's image have. You know, earlier on in Matthew's Gospel, uh, it says that, that God the Father knows when one sparrow falls to the ground dead. He knows. He cares. I'm sure he cares about, uh, you know, sheep's bigger. I don't know. If you weigh more, does that mean God cares about you more? I don't know. But a sheep, you know, has a little more consciousness maybe than a sparrow. But how much more a person... And by the way, think how rude that is, that there's a man with a withered hand, whatever that is, but you know, when we've been talking about first century culture, that that would really make you an outsider. And instead of saying, uh, hey, what do you think about poor Eric here? Uh, do you think you could heal him today or tomorrow? They, they just make an object out of him. They don't even respect that he's a living, breathing person.
Is it lawful? Is it biblical to heal on the Sabbath? Pay attention to this. Jesus healed the man. And what does it say? He restored the man. Now why is that significant? Because the man, the Bible says, has a withered hand. I've got to ask you, medical, Emily, what's a withered hand? Is that like in, I, I've never seen that one in a medical manual. If you look at a medical journal, you might find deformed hand, mangled hand, leprous hand, broken hand. What is a withered hand? So you left it out in the sun too long, turned into raisin man? Uh, withered is a theological term. Withered is a term that the prophets often used to describe disobedient Israel. And when they were being disobedient, God would wither their prosperity. Their land would dry up and wither. Uh, oftentimes Israel is referred to as God's choice vine or his vineyard. And when they were being judged, the vine would wither. Now, Sabbath. Remember what we talked about with Sabbath. The day that aimed at God's future rescue, His day of rest, His coming kingdom, His restoration of withered Israel. Could this mean that Jesus, in Jesus, all that Sabbath was pointing to was coming true? That's exactly what I'm saying it means. Everything that Sabbath was pointing to Salvation, rest, restoration is coming true in Jesus. So now, letter streets, what does that mean? We've got through all that cultural, biblical stuff. What do you take away with this? All right. Now, I personally have experienced, and probably you have too, the spectrum on what to do with Sabbath. Uh, I've experienced the churches that claim Sabbath is completely done away with. Why even use that word? And I've experienced uh, churches that have shifted the Saturday Sabbath, basically, and plopped it on top of Sunday, and said it is a command. You need to observe Sabbath on Sunday. Don't shop. Don't mow your lawn. Nothing. Okay, so I've experienced both those extremes and everything in between. Of course, even the extremist churches... It's okay to break Sabbath if you're a pastor or a lay volunteer, which is most of us. Yeah, so forget about it. Okay. So what do we make of this? The spectrum, what do we do with Sabbath? Well, first, first let's remember that this message is good news, right? It's in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Jesus is saying that all Sabbath was aiming toward... The reason for doing Sabbath is because it's an object lesson aiming towards something has arrived in me. It's arrived in Jesus. Okay? Jesus is the kingdom of God in a person. What happens when demonically possessed people came up in front of Jesus? They freaked out. Jesus cast them out. The king... When Jesus was confronted with weather that wouldn't behave, he just says a word and it, it changes to his will. The kingdom of God is present in Jesus. He's the one through whom you and I may have eternal life. Now, we don't experience that fullness of life yet, but the promise has been unleashed. It's set in motion. The kingdom of heaven, of God, is breaking into our world. And just as a side note, that's what we strive uh, to do as a church, is to be people who reflect the kingdom. You can't make it come. Don't ever, let me hear you say that. Lord, help us to bring the kingdom. He brings it. We reflect it. We enjoy it. So if the Sabbath was a practice that aimed at Jesus, and Jesus has come, then Sabbath, hear this part, Sabbath in the way it was practiced, 
seems to me is outdated, not needed. In fact, to keep the old Sabbath regulations would be, I think, to insult the incarnation of Jesus, to insult the cross of Jesus, and to insult the reign of Jesus. It would be like saying, no thanks, we'll keep waiting for someone else. Because if Sabbath aims at salvation, and Jesus is the aim of Sabbath, then it's like basically if we want to keep doing it, it's like saying, no thanks, we'll, we'll wait, we'll keep waiting. Now, you're all familiar, probably all too familiar with the whole Skagit Bridge thing, right? The Skagit Bridge collapsed, makes commuting down south a little difficult. So allow me a modern day parable to drive my point home. The people of Seattle were proud of their heritage. They loved their space needle and their coffee shops. But the hustle and bustle of life was killing them softly and their sports teams were giving them ulcers. Their prophets spoke of a land of promise to the north, a land of great beauty, a land of many bike lanes, a land of subdued excitement. They spoke of the land of Bellingham. But the Seattleites had a problem, a great river, a chasm, too difficult to cross, separated them from Bellingham. Their greed and consumption meant a steady flow of commercial trucks, one of which struck the Skagit Bridge and kept them out of the land. As the Seattleites came north, they were given signs, aiming, detour routes. They came to trust the signs, telling them to turn right and telling them when to turn left. And one day they came to the last sign, pointing them the way to the promised land. But they were so used to following the signs, they kept following them back south and were in an endless loop of sign following through Mount Vernon where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> Sabbath, in the way it was practiced, is like those detour signs, pointing to something wonderful beyond themselves. But when that something wonderful comes, it is insanity to keep following the signs. So Sabbath, the one aiming at something better, is in one sense dead. In fact, the early church uh, spread among the non-Jews fairly early on. And Sabbath wasn't even part of their lives. Christians moved worship to Sunday, not as a new Sabbath, but because the Lord was raised on a Sunday. They called it the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. They gathered for worship and communion, reading of the scriptures and prayer in the morning on Sunday. And then guess what? They went to work. People didn't have Sunday off until well after Constantine uh, kind of made Christianity sanctioned in the Roman Empire. In the book of Acts, there's a council in the 15th chapter between James, the leader of the Jewish church in Jerusalem, and some of the Gentile leaders. The question is whether or not Gentile Christians need to become circumcised first in order to become uh, uh, Christians. In, order, in other words, do they need to become Jewish first in order to become Christian second? He says no. Sabbath. Something absolutely central to Jewish identity was not required of those early converts. Much later on, some groups within the church suddenly said, well, now that Christianity is also an empire, let's, uh, 
Let's make Sunday a Sabbath and close all the stores and look down at our noses on people who mow their lawns on Sabbath day and those kind of things. So, uh, so that's, it kind of became something later on. The question then is whether or not we should keep the old Sabbath. Uh, the answer is no for the old Sabbath. The question is then, if Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom that the Sabbath always pointed to, then every day ought to look different for us than the days before Jesus. How do we live with better rhythms of work and rest? How do we ensure that we are truly living and not just managing our lives? That came out of a journal entry for me. Because I slip into that so often, figure out that I am managing. I take God's good gifts and I turn them into tasks that oppress me, that make me stressed out. That's not living in a Sabbath reality. So for me, what I've found that I need is I do need a day of rest. And I bet you you do too. And my day of rest is on Friday, which most of you from the church know. And I call it my Sabbath, not because I think I'm ordered to, because I receive it with my hands open as a gift, because I'm trying to learn. I am a learner. I'm a disciple. I've not figured it out yet. I am a workaholic. My name is Chris. <laughs> and I'm trying to slow down and figure this rhythm out that Jesus has opened up to us. The Lord of the Sabbath has said, guess what? Sabbath reality, Sabbath rest. Here you go. How do you turn your life now into a new reality? And and I got to say, it's easier said than done. It's a challenge to receive that gift in the world we live in. The world we live in preaches a message of produce or perish. This, this idea of living with a healthy balance of work and rest and worship and fun and joy, it's a frontal assault on my pride and on your pride and on our way of life. It's a frontal assault on my self-sufficiency. It made the Pharisees so uncomfortable, they conspired to kill Jesus. So here we are, confronted by the good news that the aim of Sabbath all along is Jesus. And it's all along been the life available to us in Jesus. And it is a gift Salvation itself, it's all we said before and more. It is forgiveness, it is shalom, it is hope of resurrection, Holy Spirit, new life, adoption into God's family, accepting the reign of God. And the question, I think, if the Lord of, uh, of the Sabbath has done all of that and offers it to us, will you, will I, will we receive it? Pray with me. So thankful, Lord, still for the message that you gave us last week about your yoke being gentle, not burdensome. I'm thankful that you, don't need, you, you, you open us up to a whole new reality and you don't just leave us to figure it out on our own. You say, follow you and you will mentor us and show us and ease us into this new life.
And I pray, Lord, for a supernatural trust, especially for all of those type A, driven, reluctant to trust anyone but our own resources type people. Help us, Lord, with our skepticism. Could it really be that good? Could it really be free? Could God really be that generous? Holy Spirit, we pray for your work uh, of breaking down the walls in our hearts and in the ways that we think and the, the behaviors, the rhythms that we've created. And help us to enter in step by step, day by day, into your rest, into your joy, into receiving life as a gift rather than turning it into a list of tasks. We're desperate for your help. Thank you for this news. It's good news that shows us that, that it's a reality. We pray now for your help to live it out. Amen.